Good evening and Christian greetings to each and every one of you. Good to see you here this evening. Good to see several visitors here with us as well. We're looking forward to hearing what Tim has to minister to us this evening. After uh, Tim's sermon last evening, um, he referenced uh, the upper room discourse, um, referencing the Holy Spirit. And so today my mind was drawn to that. I'd like for you to turn with me to John chapter 17, which is the high priestly prayer. And um, I read this several times today, and it just, it it spoke to me, and I'm not going to make a lot of comments on it. Um, Several things I just want to to mention. Um, Verse 9 indicates that Jesus is praying for believers, for his disciples. That's just pretty incredible when you think about that. And then in verse 22, it talks about that the glory that the Father has given Jesus has been given to believers. Just think about that. The glory that the Father gave to Jesus has been given to believers, that believers can be one. Um, Anyway, I, just, I plan to read this and uh, just make, I don't really plan to comment more, but what I did, when I read this, I get confused with all the pronouns, the I's and you's and these and uh, them's and, and so forth. And so what I did is I replaced that with the Father, with Jesus, with disciples. And so I want to read it that way. So it's going to be pretty repetitive in that way, but I think it gives a richer meaning to what this prayer is all about. And so I'm going to break in um, where Jesus starts speaking. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Father's Son, that the Son may glorify the Father. Since the Father has given his Son, Jesus, authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom the Father has given Jesus. And this is eternal life, that the disciples know the Father, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom the Father has sent. Jesus glorified the Father on earth, having accomplished the work that the Father gave Jesus to do. And now, Father, glorify Jesus in the Father's own presence with the glory that Jesus had with the Father before the world existed. Jesus has manifested the Father's name to the people whom the Father gave Jesus out of the world. The disciples were the fathers, and the Father gave the disciples to Jesus, and the disciples have kept the Father's word. Now the disciples know that everything that the Father has given to Jesus is from the Father. For Jesus has given the disciples the words that the Father gave Jesus, and the disciples have received the words that have come And have come to know in truth that Jesus came from the Father, and the disciples have believed that the Father sent Jesus. Jesus is praying for the disciples. Jesus is not praying for the world, but for those whom the Father has given Jesus, for the disciples are the Father's. All Jesus has is the Father's, and the Father's is Jesus, and Jesus is glorified in them. And Jesus is no longer in the world, but the disciples are in the world. And Jesus is coming to the Father. Holy Father, keep the disciples in the Father's name, 
which the Father has given Jesus, that the disciples may be one, even as the Father and Son are one. While Jesus was with the disciples, he kept the disciples in the Father's name, which the Father has, had given Jesus. Jesus has guarded the disciples, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. And now Jesus is coming to the Father, and these things Jesus spoke in the world that the disciples may have Jesus' joy fulfilled in themselves. Jesus has given the disciples the Father's word, and the word and the world has hated the disciples because they are not of the world, just as Jesus is not of the world. Jesus does not ask that the Father take the disciples out of the world, but that the Father keep them from the evil one. The disciples are not of the world, just as Jesus is not of the world. Sanctify the disciples in the truth. The Father's word is truth. As the Father sent Jesus into the world, so Jesus has sent the disciples into the world. And for the disciples' sake, Jesus consecrates that the disciples may be sanctified in truth. Jesus does not ask for these disciples only, but also for those who believe in Jesus through their word. And I'll just interject here. So I've used disciples up to this point for them, which is the 11. But then he, this is now talking about other believers. That believers may all be one, just as you, Father, are in Jesus, and Jesus in the Father. That believers may, also, may be in the Father and Son, so that the world may believe that the Father has sent Jesus. The glory that the Father gave Jesus has been given to believers, that believers may be one, even as the Father and Son are one. Jesus in believers and the Father in Jesus, that believers may be perfectly one, so that the world may know that the Father sent Jesus and loved believers, even as the Father loved Jesus. Father, Jesus desires that believers also, whom the Father has given Jesus, may be with Jesus, where Jesus is, to see Jesus' glory that the Father has, that the Father has given Jesus because the Father loved Jesus before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know the Father, Jesus knows the Father, and believers know the Father has sent Jesus. Jesus made known to believers the Father's name, and Jesus will continue to make it known that the love which the Father has loved Jesus may be in believers and Jesus in the believers. <clears throat> like I say, it gets very <clears throat> wordy, but to me it just helped clarify. And the thing that just struck me is, was the two verses I already pointed out is verse 9 where it says that Jesus is praying for his disciples and we are among the disciples. And then in verse 22, the glory that the Father has given Jesus has been given to believers, that believers may be one like the Father and the Son are one. I said we're very grateful to have Tim here with us for another message here this evening. Tim, if you would come forward, I want to have a word of prayer with you. <clears throat> Father, thank you so much for your love for us. 
thank you for sending Jesus. And just this picture that Jesus paints in this high priestly prayer of what he desires for us, that he wants us to grow, he wants us to be sanctified, he wants us to, uh, to become images of Jesus himself. And I just pray that uh, as we continue this weekend, that that would be happening here among us, and uh, that you would be glorified through the process of, of this weekend. Bless Brother Tim as he ministers to us this evening. Anoint him with the power of your spirit. And I pray that you would anoint each of our ears as listeners as well to be able to hear what you have for us this evening. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Greetings to each of you, and it's in the name of Jesus Christ that I bring that to you. I hope you've been in serious conversation with the Lord today and uh, open to the Holy Spirit and in, in, in seeking his directives tonight. And I know that can be a grapple at times, but um, that's not all bad. I'd just like to read Proverbs 3, verse 5 and 6. And uh, it says this, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. And tonight you're on a path. And uh, who else would you have to direct you if it's not the Lord Jesus Christ? You know, it would be great if, if God today would have um, displayed to each one of, of you um, a handwritten message on a wall that said, um, I want you to do this, or I want you to vote this way. Um, probably hasn't happened, but uh, we have a wall where God does write his messages on, and that's in our heart and in our mind. Lean not unto thine own understanding does not mean putting your brain into limp mode. We have this dump truck, and it's a diesel dump truck, and it's got this really stupid DEF system on it. And if you know anything about diesels and DEF systems, uh, you probably hate them as much as I do. Anyway, uh, the other day it went to a regen mode, and uh, it was all because of a temperature sensor malfunction. And that when it goes into regen mode, then, then you can drive about 10, 15 miles an hour to a repair shop. You just kind of, it's what they call the limp mode. And I find it very disgusting, but it that does happen occasionally. And I have to think about that, and I wonder if God doesn't sometimes look at us and say, you're in limp mode, <laughs> and you're just limping along. Uh, you can do better than that. I, you know, sometimes I wonder if God isn't, isn't wanting to say, you know, look, I gave you a brain, use it. <laughs> you know, a, a degree of suspense always goes with this type of evening. And uh, as a body, you'll be making a selection for a new member on your leadership team. And I wish that 
we could do things differently, um, somehow to distress the evening. But one thing I do value deeply in these type of events and settings is that the, the contribution of the membership is very much a part of this this evening, and that is, that is so important. So just assume that a bit of stress is going to be a part of this evening, and I don't know, I, I, I suspect that there's not a one of you that doesn't deal with stress in life, um, so stress is just a part of things we deal with. <clears throat> I wish I could tell you to relax tonight, and I suspect that I'm probably more relaxed than you are. <laughs> for a change. <laughs> and, and you've made me feel very comfortable, and that's, that's greatly appreciated. You know, the question for the membership here is, okay, so who's going to be in the lot? And for the leadership team, they also have some questions that they're wondering um, and open to. You know, it's, it's the uncertainty. Who's going to be on the leadership team, and how is that going to change the dynamics of the leadership, the current leadership team? Personalities, characters, this, this is the whole spectrum of, of questions that we don't know. The one thing we do know is that God does know. And when we trust him to place that person in those positions, we can, ha we can have the confidence that things will work out. <clears throat> I'll tell you something that helped me the evening of my ordination with two in the lot. And uh, my sister-in-law, Hilda Zuck, uh, she said to me, God, and this was before we went to the service, she said to me, God already knows who he has chosen for this ministry role. And there's so much truth in that. And, and, and I think it is possible to rest in that, knowing that God knows what he's doing. And even though I don't know what the outcome might be. God does know that, and he has already been preparing for that. <clears throat> Tonight I'd like to speak to the subject, subject of a call from God. I'm going to be reading uh, from Samuel, 1 Samuel 1, verse 24 and 28, and it's a very familiar passage. This is... Um, this is the account of Hannah praying for a child, and then you know the story how God gave her a child. She was barren. And this is sometime later where we'll just jump into verse 24. In verse 24, and when she had weaned him, she took him up with her with three bullocks and an ephah flower and a bottle of wine and brought him unto the house of the Lord in Shiloh. And the child was young, and they slew a bullock and brought the child to Eli. And she said, O my Lord, as thy soul liveth, my Lord, I am the woman that stood by thee here praying unto the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord hath given me my petition, which I ask of him. Therefore also I have lent him to the Lord, and as long as he liveth, he shall be lent to the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord there. What does Lent to the Lord mean? It's what Hannah said that she was doing. In Samuel, 1 Samuel 1, verse 11, Hannah had made a vow to God that if God would hear her petition and would give her a man-child, then she in turn would give him to the Lord for all the days of his life. 
Now, Hannah's Lent wasn't a you-can-borrow-him-for-a-while kind of Lent, and then I-want-him-back kind of Lent. But it was this, you gave me this precious gift, and now I am granting him to you for your service for all of his life. That's the kind of Lent that she was giving. It's so typical, typical of us to, to, to keep just a little bit of ownership for ourselves when God wants it all. You know, we're not opposed to a Lent idea, but, but keeping a little bit. Now, it's Hannah's attitude that stands out to me in that, that in spite of how hard it must have been for Hannah to give up that child, at that age, I can't imagine how a mother would do that. Um, give him away. But she had vowed a vow that she followed through. So she was committed to do what she had decided that she would do. You know, even though we're God's people, we do encounter times of needing to lent ourselves in a new way to the Lord. And that may be what tonight and this weekend is going to be about for the person that God has chosen for this service. And so I asked you this, what kind of Lent are you willing to lend of yourself to God? Are you all in? Or are you retaining just a little bit of ownership for yourself? In 1 Samuel 3, 4 through 10, I'm going to read that, but this is about hearing God's call. You know the account. And the Lord called Samuel, and he answered, Here am I. And he ran unto Eli and said, Here am I, for thou callest me. And he said, I called not. Lie down again. And he went and lay down. And the Lord called again, yet again, Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here am I, for thou didst call me. And he answered, I called not, my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, neither was the word of the Lord yet revealed unto him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time. And he arose and went to Eli and said, Here am I, for thou didst call me. And Eli perceived that the Lord had called the child. Therefore Eli said unto Samuel, Go lie down, and it shall be, if he call thee, that thou shalt say, Speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And the Lord came and stood and called as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. Then Samuel answered, Speak, for thy servant heareth. So as a young child, Samuel heard God's call. And just naturally, Samuel thought that Eli was calling him. It was a very natural thing to, to, to think. And it was the third time that Eli instructed Samuel how to respond um, that San, Samuel responded, Speak for thy servant heareth. Now, if I remember correctly, <laughs> um, 
I think Eli had told him to say, speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. And Samuel said, speak, for thy servant heareth. And I don't know that there's significance in that, excepting it did say that Samuel did not know the Lord yet. I just found that interesting. You might think that Samuel was innocent and young and maybe a bit naive, and maybe he, at this point, didn't know what he wanted in life, didn't feel like Samuel had a whole lot of say-so in what he was going to do in life. But whatever age Samuel was at this point, you never read where he resisted the purpose of his life. You know, he didn't seem to deal with, but Lord, I really wanted to do this. Or I wanted to be that. You know, I had something else in mind for myself. You never read where Samuel did that. Why is it so hard for us to align our will with God's direction and God's desires? I think I figured out why. God allowed us to have our own will. With its struggles and its battles and its fights, and God must have viewed that as being much more useful to him than some robotic people. When our will submits to God's larger picture, then we can become tools useful in God's kingdom. I believe that's why God gave us that will. Rather than being a robot, and not having a choice. Thirdly, how about responding to God's call? And I think of Jonah when I think of this. And I like Jonah. I don't know what you think of Jonah, but I like him because he's so human. And the book of Jonah is a really fascinating story, um, and I think it reflects the ebb and flow of her own struggle with God. In chapter 1, God had spoken to Jonah, and he had given him specific instructions of what he should be doing on this particular mission. And it was this, go to Nineveh and cry against it, because God had noticed the wickedness that was happening in, in Nineveh. And it simply was this message, tell them how wicked they are, and tell them to repent. That's the core of the message that God gave to Jonah. Have you ever wondered why Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh? Hmm. Did you know that Nineveh was the powerhouse city of their time? And did you know that the people of Nineveh hated the Jewish people and did not treat them very well? And Jonah was a Jew. Jonah said, I'm not going to Nineveh. And then so he headed for some location of his own choosing, and it was called Tarshish. And you know, Tarshish was the absolute furthest point west that he could travel. And that's what he headed for. 
That says something about the determination of Jonah to avoid this mission. How far can a person run from God? How far do you have to go to get away from God? The psalmist says it best in Psalms 139, verse 8 through 10, and this is in the message translation. Is there any place I can go to avoid your spirit, to be out of your sight? If I climb to the sky, you're there. If I go underground, you're there. If I flew on morning's wings to the far western horizon, you'd find me in a minute. You're already there waiting. Then I said to myself, oh, he even sees me in the dark. At night, I'm immersed in the light. It's a fact. Darkness isn't dark to you. Night and day, darkness and light, they're all the same to you. Why do we even try? because we already know God is everywhere. Usually, we think in terms of dying for God. Jonah literally was willing to die to get away from God. (laughs) Throw me in the sea, he said. And there was no logical human way that he was going to survive that. In essence, he was saying, I want to die rather than complete your mission. Throw me overboard. He, he knew what was going on. If you read the account, he told the sailors. Eventually, he ended up telling the sailors, this is his fault. You know, God is doing this. This is who I serve. And, and, and you know the account. Throw me overboard. He's still fighting. You know Jonah's fish story. <laughs> You know, God puts us into places where we have no control before we give up. At least it feels that way. But perhaps it's not God putting us into those places so much as we are putting ourselves into those places. I think Jonah's repentant prayer was authentic. I think he gave up. Wouldn't you with seaweeds wrapped around your head? (laughs) I think I would. It's where we say, I give up. I can't do this my way. Okay, Lord, I'll do it your way. On the way down here, traffic on Route 66 was was just horrendous. And... uh, So we took an alternate route. I think it was Route 28, but we took it, we we, we followed the GPS, which, you know, I like GPS, but I'm not a blind follower of GPS until I have to be. I say, GPS, you're doing what I want you to do. Well, we got to the place where, because of the traffic, I had to follow the GPS. and, And the GPS would tell us, you know, had this voice that would speak, and it would say, you're on the best route. You're on the best route. And repeatedly it would tell us that. And I had to think of that when I was thinking about Jonah and the route that we often choose. Are you on the best route? So the fish spits out Jonah. 
And Jonah goes to Nineveh, and he does preach repentance, and, and, and lo and behold, Nineveh repents. You know, it's really interesting how Jonah didn't want to see that happen. I haven't figured out how you would, re, re, would preach a repentance sermon, but you wouldn't want anybody to repent. <laughs> I don't get that. I wish Jonah's story could have ended after he preached repentance and he didn't decide to go out there on that hillside and, and watch and see what happens. And, you know, um, I don't believe that God ended the story there because uh, God had a valuable lesson for us to learn from that story um, about Jonah's struggle and his fight with God. Did you know that you can accept God's will and still have a bad attitude? It's not fun, and it doesn't work out, but that's the picture of Jonah. Okay, I'll do it. There was still something inside Jonah that said, I don't really want to. <clears throat> And so Jonah had another problem, and God had to work it out of him. Moses also is the perfect example of how we resist God's will. In Exodus 4, 1 through 17, um, it describes capable people that are hindered with a great deal of reluctance. I'm going to assume you're not like that. God and Moses were having this discussion in chapter 3, and God is telling Moses exactly what he should say when he, when he goes back to Egypt. And God gave him lots of good, detailed information of what he should actually say and who he should say it for. And he told him what was going to happen and, and, and what God, he himself, would do. And I don't think that it gets much better than that. Um, but Moses in Exodus 4, verse 1, tells God, you know, my people, the Jewish people, they're not going to believe me, and they're going to basically say, God didn't tell you this. This is Moses talking to God. Can you imagine? They're going to say, God didn't talk to you. when God had told Jonah specifically that they're going to hear you, Jonah said, no. Moses said, no, they're not. You know, other people's opinion become our greatest stumbling block. Moses' real problem here was this, that his past was staring him in the face. And that was his bigger problem. Do you know how Moses had been in Egypt and how he had killed a guy and uh, he had to leave and flee? Would you go back if that were you? Moses didn't want to. You know, our will does not give up easily. 
Moses was like that. Verse 10, Moses laments with this, and he's still talking to God. He says, I am not eloquent, neither heretofore nor since thou hast spoken unto thy servant, but I am slow of speech and of a slow tongue. Sounds very eloquent to me. <laughs> um, there was nothing slow about his speech when he was making excuses. And he probably had the highest education that was possible in that day. You know, it's not true that the things that we think are so necessary and vital are not so important to God. God said, I'll take care of all your issues. Here's what you say. Not a big deal. Guess what Moses said? And I'm going to paraphrase Moses. After God had told him all these things, Moses says to God, Lord, send somebody else. Pick somebody else. That's maybe what you're thinking tonight. Is it any wonder that God got angry with Moses? Does God get angry with us sometimes? You know, I suppose that if it were not for God's long-suffering spirit, there would be times when he could express some anger to us because of how we resist. I don't like to talk about myself, but I'm going to for just a little bit. Like I said last evening, I remember my dad's ordination at a very young age. And in my adolescent stages, um, I saw lots of people with issues. <laughs> Not that I was involved, but I, I just saw that as a, as a PK. Uh, you see some of that. And I understand, <clears throat> I understand that there is always going to be people that struggle, that have issues in life. And to some degree, that's all of us. I understand that now. And it was in that vulnerable adolescent stage in life that I determined that I would never be a preacher in my life. And fact of the matter is, I viewed being a preacher as being a dog's life. Now, you know, people pet dogs, but people also kick dogs. People kicking people happens all the time. You know, people take out their frustrations. They take out their issues on preachers and their kids. <laughs> don't do that. And I don't think you will. There was a point in my life, because of a lot of this kind of stuff, that I was this close from walking away from God. Really. And if it wouldn't have been for Paul Petersheim at that critical juncture in my life, spending time, I mean, I'm talking hours, 
past midnight, I don't think I'd be up here. You know, I'm thankful that I didn't choose that path for my life. But I never figured I'd be a preacher. You know how life goes. You move on, you get married, you have a family, and you kind of just push it back into the recesses of your mind. Well, God did exactly what I didn't want him to do, and he called me to the ministry. I know well the battles of the will between my will and God's will. I know what it feels like to fight God for 10 years as a preacher. I know what it feels like to surrender, to embrace, to accept what God wants to do in your life. And I stand here to tell you that's a much better way. Don't get me wrong. There's still times that I struggle with not my will but thine. That happens. Surrendering surrendering our will to God's will in something that you desperately don't want is often harder than the call itself. You know, it's not the greatest challenges that come from circumstances that press in on us, but it's the internal struggle of surrendering my will to God's will that is the greatest challenge. And I find it interesting to think it in in these terms. Isn't our greatest struggle simply a mirror of what Jesus struggled with in the Garden of Gethsemane. Do you think that was easy for Jesus? I don't think so. You know, I think his words were something like this. Um, If it is your will, take this away from me. He was speaking from his heart. But his words to his father are the most challenging words I think that we can find. When he said, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Those are hard words to say. When God's will seems cruel to you, and it's not what you wanted, you will wage no greater struggle than the surrender of your will. Matthew 12, verse 50. For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. Perhaps one of the reasons that we fight so much is because surrendering to God's will is a relinquishing of my rights and my will. It's yielding my life my thoughts, my actions, and my spirit to God. And it's not just preachers that struggle with that. 
You don't have to be just called to the ministry to deal with that. That's life. You know, it's opening that tight-fisted, closed fist of control that we have for ourselves. And it's opening that up and it's placing our trust in God instead of ourselves. That's the struggle. Tonight, you might find yourself having to choose what your will response will be to God. And I would simply like to bless you and ask God to divinely direct your voting selection as you vote tonight. So if you would, pause with me in prayer. God, we find ourselves at this moment that we've been anticipating and knowing that it's, it's coming and it's here. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would have revealed himself today to these people, that you would still, at this moment, reveal yourself if there's any uncertainty or um, not knowing who to vote for. Who to, who, just We know that at this moment, your spirit can still move. And most of all, we pray that your will would be accomplished and that we would find ourselves able to submit and, to your will and embrace it. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Brother Dave.